This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros. So sorry to keep doing this. I'm on set in Vancouver. And today's episode is a re-release of my chat with Casper Turkile from a few... God, was it actually years ago? Heavens to Betsy. I got a bunch of new tour dates. They are all up at CameronEsposito.com. But just so you know where I will be heading, I will be coming to Seattle, Burlington, Vermont, Boston, Denver, D.C., Dallas, Austin, Houston, L.A., New York and Chicago are coming soon. Oh, I can't wait to see you on the road. CameronEsposito.com for tickets. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. Well, I always have guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> I'll do that again. <laughs> I mean, you're killing it. <laughs> just nailing it. You're killing it. That's it. That's all you need to do. Hi, hi everyone. Yeah. It's very, very warm and welcoming introduction. Let's hear it. I was like, let me have a sip of tea. There's going to be some chat. No, okay. Let me do that again. Yeah. Hey, Cameron. Uh, I'm Casper. I'm the co-host of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and the author of a new book, The Power of Ritual. Um, and I'm calling in from my hometown of uh forest row in sussex so i'm in england oh, and i've been like gall- yeah i've been gallivanting around fields and just like hugging trees and, and being so happy to be in nature after six months of new york city during lockdown <laughs> right um how was your travel to england so Terrifying? i was so i was so nervous about it and it was the most comfortable flight of my life because there was literally no one in it. I slept on four seats. There was no lines. I just sat in my seat the whole time and got off and went straight home. So I What I did felt, you wear I on your face? Safe. Oh, there was a lot of mask. Um, I had, uh, what else? I was going to say I, I put on like sunglasses, but I didn't. But I had an eye mask. So I slept, I slept a bunch. Yeah, it was very comfortable. Wow. Um, how long are you in Essex? Um, I'm here for four. Did you say Sussex? Essex. Sussex. Yeah, I was oh, gonna say. Who like, cares? No, I'm yeah. just kidding. I do. <laughs> well, it's I can't. literally no, it's where you're from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we make but, like Essex is the American Jersey, so like it's a whole. Oh it's my a god! Whole thing. Well, uh-huh. yeah. I'm so sad you're not from there. <laughs> The exactly. Um, um, but um, no, but it's been it's been really good because I don't know about you, but this has just been really tough these last six months. It's been super tough. And I called my mom like in tears a couple months ago. I was like, do you think I could come home? Um, so <laughs> and she was like, sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is so some stuff that pre, um, how do you even say this? I think there was a certain you know, I can read queerness into Harry Potter. I'm somebody who was mm. raised in a certain faith tradition and felt like organized religion no longer served me. And right. then my partner is 
was super into the specifically the Harry Potter audiobooks that she grew up listening to. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've like the Jim Dale ones where oh, yeah. he's doing all of the voices. All the voices. They're, they're so beautiful. Um and I think that up until very recently, you know, there was a sort of I know what's going on for J.K. Rowling and this text seems mm-hmm. so um in opposition to that, that like I can sort of hold the text and not hold the author. But that being said, mm-hmm. her most recent round of like um of terrifying yeah. statements that put, you know, our trans family members in direct danger um has really changed my view on the series. And then mm-hmm. also it's like, oh, and of course, like it's incredibly racist that you know, all oh like, like Cho Chang, yes. like, let's not oh, name yeah. a character that when that's the only, you know, like, uh, constantly talking about how there's like, uh, one black character and that that character is, you know, always described as black. So it makes you realize that everybody who isn't described is like default right. white and, you know, right. every other thing, the way that house elves are talked about and like how troubling that is. I mean, there's a whole and, and you once you go stop into a listing, lot of it, it yes. doesn't end. That's, it, that's the no thing. End. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, and I know that that's also something that uh, you've talked about. You've talked about mm. all these issues on on your podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Um, but I bought your book because I mm. am trying to address some of the stuff that you're talking about um, through. I don't know, like an exploration of spirituality. It's very weird. I'm having cool. a very weird time. Isn't it strange? Like I had mm-hmm. such, I mean, I didn't grow up with any religious background and the word God was just like weird and stupid for me as as a kid, especially once I came out, I was like, oh, religion is either cruel or like useless and irrelevant. And it was just so far away from my world. But then against every instinct that I had, there came a point, and I'd been really involved as a, as a climate activist. I was really involved in mobilizing young people around the, th- this international climate deal. And it, and the talks failed in 2009. There were these big international talks and they didn't lead anywhere. And I, you know, I had friends who were like on hunger strike for 41 days. Like we were all in on this organizing. And when it fell short, I... I looked around me and I was like, I can never risk my heart like this again in a movement, in in a, in something that I care for. And I looked at the leaders who I most admired in social justice movements in history, and I was like, how how did they keep going? Because they risked way more than I ever did. They they struggled much longer than I ever have. Like, how on earth do you keep going? And I kept seeing this like spirituality show up, and it it totally confused me because I was like, how First of all, as like a gay person, how am I going to do that? And then secondly, is like, I don't have a religious tradition. Like I didn't grow up with anything. Like, how am I going to do that? And so I've been on this like exploration for for the last, I'd say like 10 years at this point. And I don't have any answers, Cameron, but I can tell you what I've been seeing from my journey. <laughs> but it's, yeah. I, I think, I think more and more of us are, are sitting in this exploration phase, trying to piece together something that feels authentic and rooted relevant but still like anchored in something so i'm really curious to to hear from you like what are you what are you discovering well i want to get to that but i want to ask you some questions about the climate activism stuff because i I knew that about you um and i think it's a like an under sort of reported (laughs) 
um, identity. Like I don't, I don't know yeah. a lot of people that I think would identify sort of yeah. first as climate activists because that's a very. Um, anyway, two thousand nine. How old would you have been go, leading up I, to that? I I was uh, twenty three. So I'd been I'd been really involved in climate stuff from like twenty to twenty three, twenty four. Like those three four years was when I was most involved. What happened at twenty that this is? <laughs> the path that you followed. Well, um, so I was really radicalized by reading Naomi Klein's No Logo when I was like 17, 18. And this is this is an amazing book. If you if you haven't read it, it's really a story of the 1990s about how big corporations were using um really slave labor um from people in, in, working in the developing world with you know no labor conditions no environmental conditions for the kind of brands like Nike and 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 the Gap like all these big brands of the 1990s that that everyone loved um and so it was such an awakening awakening for me as a child of great privilege to see that the world was way more unfair than i have I had ever understood. And so I started digging into these kind of global trade issues and started to get involved first in my um, in my university as a student, kind of making our campus fair trade and then getting involved with like recycling campaigns and all sorts of things that were really about the campus. And then I had this extraordinary experience when I was one of 20 young people from around the world that got to go on this 10-day Arctic voyage. So we were literally on a research ship going to the North Pole to like learn from climate scientists to see the impact of, of global warming on, on these glaciers and to see the rise of, um, of of water levels and what that would mean, not just for the Arctic, but for the whole world. And, and my parents are both Dutch and like a third of Holland is below sea level. So all of this felt very, very real. Like looking at these maps of what's going to happen as sea level rises, I was like, oh, that's where my friend lives and now it's underwater. And so it, I was really... It, it wasn't a radicalization. It was more of a personalization. Like climate is such a an issue that sometimes feels far away, either, either sometimes like far, far away geographically or far away in terms of time. And this experience like made it feel so real and so immediate that it lit a fire under my ass. And I... <laughs> I, I was just like, screw it. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna get involved as much as I can. And I saw these other young people from India and Canada and Australia and all around the world who were mobilizing young people around these global agreements, these moments when countries came together to set targets for themselves and, and kind of build a structure of accountability. And I was like, that's where I can get involved. And so that's really, that's really when I kind of took on the label of a climate activist. And some friends and I set up an organization to, to mobilize young people. And, you know, we failed in all sorts of ways. But like each of those people who are involved at that, at that kind of level of organizing are still doing amazing work, contributing to, to activism in all sorts of ways today. And I'm like, yeah, th those people never leave your heart. It's, it's a powerful thing. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? 
Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on. I think that beyond just what you're talking about geographically or, or time-wise a distance, I think that, that it's also another, for me anyway, I think my relationship to, it's like there's no doubt in my mind what I think, you know, there's, right. there's no doubt in my, my mind what the facts are. But it's also, it's a topic that seems so large yes. that I think that yes. it can feel very like, I don't even know what the access point is. Like, it's like, you know, I mean, besides personal responsibility. So, right. you know, I think for, you know, for me, it's like, okay, so I, I recycle, I, you know, right. drive a Prius or whatever it is, you know, you, you know, yeah. but, but um, what you're talking about, I think the reason that I wanted to ask about it is also that it just feels like, and I have no idea what the UK is like or Sussex or where you were going to university. Um, yeah. But I just think that also, um, interesting to think that you know that you could be that involved like to to think i can join up you know that's also interesting right? to to take that step and totally and it's it, 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 it's one of the most challenging things about climate as an issue and in some ways you know it's similar to to homophobia or sexism or racism in that like the problem is so embedded in everything that it feels like any lever that you pull is never going to address the kind of systemic nature of the right. issue um and so yes there's personal responsibility but i'm always very you know it's so insufficient as you said like you have to think about the structural things like where is you know uh, uh my money being invested whose electricity am i using like all of that stuff but really even if all of us citizens did that individual stuff, it still wouldn't be enough to shift government action. And so that's why I was really involved in kind of lobbying politicians and like using the media. But the thing that I, I got to was that even if we moved policies, it would still not deal with the fundamental issues, which is like the paradigm we live in that says nature is something separate from us humans. Like we live in a society where we see where we see animals and plants and like the sky and water as things that are resources that are there to be used, whether it's meat for our food or like land for our buildings, rather than seeing the natural world as something that we are part of and that's something that is sacred. Um, because if we did, and there are cultures that do this and have done this, that would that would totally change the frame with which we make decisions. So for example, if you look at a lake and you're like, oh, this is a resource, well, we can pollute it to 60% because then we'll still be able to use it in the way that we need to use it. And if we see the lake as something that is inherently worth worthy and, and full of dignity and is not ours to use as we choose it, but has its own sanctity, like you wouldn't just go and pollute it 60%. You'd figure out a way to do what we wanted to do without polluting it. Um, and there's this is starting to happen, which is really exciting. There's now a river in New Zealand that has its own legal rights. And so when decisions <laughs> are being made, isn't that cool? It's like yes. the river has a say about what's going to happen. And it's like, of course that should happen. And of course there were indigenous cultures that have always carried that kind of mentality. And you see it with the bushfires in California right now. You know, the experts now tell us that it's healthy to have some burn once in a while in small doses to keep the forests healthy and resilient. 
guess what happened when when colonizers arrived in what we now call California? They banned that kind of burning because they said it was destructive. Well, the people who were native to that place were saying like, no, this is what it needs to be healthy. And so when we lose that kind of wisdom, when we lose that kind of relationship with the natural world, we get screwed. And so it's it's, it's that kind of paradigm and that kind of connection to place um, and and people that I'm really interesting in, in cultivated. And that's that's kind of how I ended up thinking about this, this question of spirituality and rituals, because those are the ways in which we reconnect in that in that deeper way. Uh yeah. I mean, I'll listen to you. Keep going. Like you're that's that's beautiful. And I and it does make you know, clear I, I'm sure anybody who just heard that is now no longer shocked to find out that you pivoted from climate af- activist to then enrolling in Harvard Divinity School and Well, I see them as connected. That's yes. that's why. You know, and and I, honestly, it took me a while to understand that they were connected because I was I was also hurting, you know, like having failed so much at something you cared so much about, like I really I really believed the narrative that we were saying, which was like if we don't get these talks right, like the human race is extinct, you know. And and of course that's not entirely true. Um there's going to be huge impacts. But but yeah, bringing those two things together is really important to me. I'm sorry, you know, I interrupted you. No, you didn't. <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking about this at like a really interesting time for me too, because I don't know exactly when this episode will come out. Like maybe it will come out Monday, but maybe in a couple weeks. Um, and last night was the final night of the Republican National Convention. So yeah. for anybody that's listening... Um, and I was just talking to my partner, Katie, before getting on here. And literally, I was saying to Jordan and Matt, who were producing, like, actually burst into tears because I realized yeah. that um, Don Jr. is probably going to have a political career. Like, I don't know why I didn't think of that previously, um, mm. but I really have been thinking about this president as, like, this, you know, sort of insidious force to hopefully move you know, yeah. out of the, not that he is the center of our, of our problems, but that I just personally feel so upset yeah. seeing his face, hearing his voice and yeah. hearing the rhetoric that he uses. Like, it's just, it's um, so baseline upsetting. And I, I just had the thought about like, oh my God, you know, and, and watching the RNC, it was mostly mm-hmm. his kids and his family and he's turned it into a, he's, you know, turned the Republican party into like a family business. And so, which is not the first time that that has happened, but it's the, for me, it feels, um, it's so painful to have this person leading the country. And I think that it does sort of relate to what you were talking about, because for me, like I graduated from college and then marriage equality happened in Massachusetts where I lived in this at that time that same week. And wow. then I got my first job working in comedy that same week professionally. I did like another day job for a while. I just worked like two jobs and 80 hours a week. But I was always moving. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I felt like we were moving in a certain direction. Right? That sense and of like, progress, right? Yeah. Yes. And... Obviously, this is not the only time that, like, then we've had this huge swing back. But I just think because I felt so personally impactful, 
Like I have this job where I get to speak my mind and I felt like I would walk into rooms and I would, and I would, and people would think something different about me. You know, they would think mm -hmm. something about queer folks or they'd think something about, you know, women or they'd think something about gender nonconforming people or whatever it is. And I felt like, man, I'm really like making strides, you know? And um, I think just had an experience of like the wind, mm. you know, leaving my sails a little bit after mm. the the last election where I just felt like, oh, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. it's not me. Maybe it's us, but I'm exhausted. And big time. It's from that place that I, you know, first worked my ass off to make like an hour of stand up about sexual assault. And then when that was released was like, oh, that actually didn't fix it. Like, I don't feel better. <laughs> like, I've, like, I've, like, I'm yeah. proud that I did that thing, but it also didn't shift, yeah. you know, um, uh, culture. I recognize so, so much in what you're saying, because I think many of us are, are raised with a sense of a, a, a story that it's going to get better. I mean, literally, especially for queer kids, like that sense of it gets better was, was literally the tagline. It's going to get better and also that I can make it better, which is also, uh -huh. I would say, a very privileged position to come from. Like, hugely, fully had to reckon with like, who the yeah. fuck do I think I am? You know, right. but I mean... I'll just leave that part as a as a whole other thing. <laughs> as a given, right? And it the gets responsibility, better, and it gets exactly. better based on me, Cameron Esposito, the person who can make it better. Okay, all right. Well, hmm. but it's but it's Go both of those yourself. things, yeah. right? Like <laughs> not, none none of us can. You know, we are all needed, and none of us is going to do it alone, right? It's like it's like yes. that both. It's sure. that both and. But but I I really think that we have been raised with that sense of we're in a story. It's going to get better, and. You know, I was I was reading this fantastic book, um, White Rage by Carol Anderson, and where she she basically outlines that like as you know, as as we seem to make progress towards uh liberation, racial equity, racism itself but becomes even more like strategic and smart at at fitting itself into whatever we've built to 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 replace the thing that was broken. Um and so I feel like that's true on other issues as well, when we seem to make progress, you know, the, the, the poison of all of the things that were broken before somehow find their way in. And I think in some ways it has to do with the fact that like humans exist, right? Like we, we hold all of that icky stuff inside of us, at least I do. Um, and so whenever we're involved with building something, unless we unless we're tackling these issues on an outer level and an inner level, we're going to recreate the same shit in whatever we're building, right? Whether whether it's um, you know the, the the relationship with with the natural world, or whether it's uh, into human relationships around around race or gender or whatever it is. And mm -hmm. so. I, you know, it's so often in in conversations around spirituality, you know, you kind of end up in, in in this escape narrative of like, okay, well, we'll leave the problems of the world. You just focus on you or like self-care or, you know, it, it, it gets kind of packaged in this way of like, you just fix yourself. And it's always both, right? Like it's that inner piece and the outer piece and, and both are necessary if we're going to see the world and live a life that you know, that we feel is possible. Or as Charles Eisenstein says, that the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. I love that phrase. Like that's that's what we're that's what where we want to be. Yeah, I feel you. I mean, I think actually 
that is, it's actually the opposite of that that has piqued my interest in. Mm. Well, so, you know, when I was like a strictly religious person, I was into liberation theology. I was into yeah. um, political act, political direct action. It's just that some of that political direct action was was confused. You know, I, I again, we're like recording this um, the same week that a bunch of rhetoric, an actual nun in habit, <sighs> appeared at the RNC. I can't explain how bonkers that is to anybody who doesn't know appearing in habit. Like a lot of times if you see a minister Maybe yeah. they'll have a Roman collar on, right. which is that little white piece uh, that goes between uh, stand up like a mock t- turtleneck collar, essentially. Um, but or I love it, nun, like priest is bad turtleneck. I like that. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like that's like that. You might see that, right? Or if you see a nun often appearing in uh, a space that is political, like you would maybe you would you would more likely today see them in like a uh, like skirt suit, like a blazer type of yeah. thing. But a nun I mean, in habit is like, that's like the Pope appearing in the fucking Pope hat to be like, I stand with this president specifically. Um, it's pretty extreme. And uh, and we had, I mean, there was a nun who spoke for the, for the Democratic Convention, Simone Campbell, who runs an amazing organization called Network, which is all about justice work in, in all sorts of ways. Yes. She led the Nuns on the Bus project that you may remember yes. around economic inequality. And, yes. and most nuns in America today, like this is so random, but I have recently befriended a couple of nuns and they are incredible. But most nuns in America don't wear the habit, like you were saying. They, they wear like... They, Normal clothes. It's like a professional sort of teacher yeah. outfit. Yes. Well, like exactly. It's like a sweater, right? Like it's, yeah. it's like a cardigan when it gets yes. a little chilly. Um, yeah. Because for 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 most nuns in America, the choice they made is to a life of of service. And when you think about, you know hospital systems, education systems in the U.S., a lot of them were founded by nuns who were wanting to serve. You know, folks who 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 were at the very edges, the folks at the margins. Um, but there are a smaller number of nuns who still wear the habit, who are often very, very conservative in their theology. And that was one of the sisters who who was on the stage. And it's it's I mean, the narratives that were coming out of the Republican convention were just so I mean, they're dangerous. They're, they're well, like specifically actively, yeah. about abortion, because yes. I think about it as you know, when, when, because of, because of what we're talking about right now, um, I'm actually probably one of like the very few people on the planet who has both attended a pro-life rally that was, that was headlined by sister Helen Prejean, um, and also hosted the Planned Parenthood National Dinner. I am, I'm not sure if there is another person who's done both of those things, but I have. Um, you have and, insights, Cameron. This is valuable. Yes, I have insights. And I think it's to watch that happening at the at the RNC. I also listen to this really great podcast that's called um, 1A. It's a, an NPR hmm. podcast that I'd really recommend to any of our listeners. But um, and they had some they had some women on who are like young women that are voting Republican that are doing it specifically and only on the ab- issue of abortion. And, wow. and that blows my mind. I mean, I I was raised in a, in a climate where 
you're getting a lot of confusing uh, confusing messaging about abortion and also where it's one of the only things that is all wrong. Like, there's no way to justify it. It's just wrong. And yep. that's because, you know, what, anyway, I could, I could go off of that. But, but, um, to think that that is still where some people are at, like that you could pick up a newspaper or walk down the street and people have masks on and that your, your number one issue <laughs> is <laughs> like yeah. that to me, I, I, that makes me, um, that makes me feel like I'm in the weeds in a way that I didn't realize, you know, that I was with how some people are experiencing 2020. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is what's going on for you. You're like, this not, well, this not it, is, also, is the difference maker for you. It also speaks to the like seriously fucked up way in which religion can work. I mean, one of the, one of the most destructive ideas I think out there around religion is that faith is about certainty right? It's about having the right answers. It's about holding the line. It's about, you know, not even questioning something. When, in my understanding, faith is about a hopefulness in the face of uncertainty. And it's about embracing questions and doubt and and learning and exploring and listening, um, but with a loving conviction at the heart of who we are. And and when that's twisted into this certainty, I mean, that's how that's how people die. Like it's it's so violent. I mean, sometimes we think about spiritual spirituality as something that's like nice and and interesting, but like it's it shapes the very foundations of who we are. And if it's dangerous, if it's if it's if it's destructive, it it can kill you or it'll kill other people. And it's so yeah, it's so important we get it right. So, do you um do you go to like a do you go to a church? Do you do you, are you ascribe to a specific faith or religion? Why are you coming at me, Cameron? <laughs> Fucking tell me no. where that church is and tell me everything it's ever stood for. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't go to a congregation, and I I struggle with this because I really believe in community. I really believe in communal practices. I didn't grow up going to church, and so in the idea of like sitting in pews is like kills my spirit. It's just like, why can I not look at someone's face? I'm just looking at someone's back of the head. And and partly because I grew up with these different influences. Like I grew up in England, so there's always going to be a little Anglican kind of Church of England vibe, especially the choral music. Love that. But I always also grew up in this like kind of pagany um school, which had a lot of like nature rituals. It was a, a Waldorf school. Um and so, you know, there's lots of like dancing around a maypole and like digging a cow horn into the earth full of cow dung and then digging it up the next year and you know all of that kind of stuff and then my parents are dutch so there's all these like dutch traditions and so wherever i go if it's one place there's never going to be like the fullness of me that feels like it belongs there it's always going to be part of me and so i end up kind of falling between the cracks a little bit and so i end up kind of creating places with other people that feel like they can they can speak more to my authentic experience of spirituality which is which is really imperfect. You know, I wish it was different, but that's that's where I'm at right now. Um, but I do have both practices for me personally that are really important. Like I do a tech Sabbath, which is just so central to my kind of sense of connection 
to spirit and to a, uh, to a kind of groundedness. Um, and then I have a confession group where basically Wait, I talk on. about all this. You do a text yeah. Sabbath. Hang on, hang on one second. I yeah. think I know what this means, but I want to ask, so I want to ask. <gasps> do like, it. What, what day, what day is that? So I do it on Friday nights. So in a minute, uh, we're recording on a Friday. When, when it gets dark, I turn off my phone. I turn off my laptop and I literally, uh, hide them and I light a candle and I sing a little camp song that I, that I learned in summer camp. And for me, that's the moment when I like cross the bridge from the time of work and like stress and trying to make things happen to what Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great Jewish theologian, described as a palace in time. And I love that now, especially during COVID, when we can't move around so much, that like we're entering into this different like time space and it's beautiful and it's it's supposed to be a taste of heaven. So on on the Sabbath in Jewish tradition, not only are you supposed to be with loved ones and like sing and be merry, you're also supposed to have sex because like it's supposed to be the most delicious time of the week. And it's not like a time of rest and recovery so that you can go at it again on Monday morning. It's supposed to be that the work week was so that you can have this time of relaxation and joy and connection. So it's it, it for me, that was such a reframe to be like, oh, this isn't about resting per se, but of course that happens. It's about delight. It's about like enjoying the fact that I'm alive. Um, so I fucking love Sabbath time. It's like- I, So you do I, like, it from Friday night till when? So you do it, traditionally you do it for 25 hours because it's so good that you want to do one extra hour in, in, in addition to the, to the full day. So you do Friday sundown to, to Saturday night sundown. Um, that's kind of the, the traditional way. I mean, listen, sometimes it's like 4 p.m. and I'm like, okay, I feel good. <laughs> and like, I don't make it all the way through. But, um, but that's, that's, the, that's the way that, that I practice it. And it's been, it's like a real anchor, especially you know, before COVID, I did move around a lot. And so to have that ritual every week was really grounding. Also, because some people are amazing at daily rituals. I find that much, much harder, like to have a consistent morning. I wish I had that kind of discipline. But once a week, I can really do. Oh, that is actually, that's a relief to hear, you know? I mean, I, I certainly, um, I also know what you mean about creating intentional community around you. And I, I have that, which is awesome. Um, yeah. But it is, and I know in your book you're also talking about people like, like using CrossFit as I mean not not today not on this particular day of 2020 are people using CrossFit as their um, right right <laughs> as their like spiritual and you know soul hub. But um, mm -hmm. do you have places like that? I mean, for me, singing is huge. Like when I sing with other people. I kind of forget that I exist. I like melt into something bigger than myself, um, which is a real relief because being in my head can get a little tiring. Um, and so um, I have a choir that I sing with, but the, the the folks I really love to sing with are kind of spread out and we get together a couple times a year um, and sing together for like a long weekend, which is, which is huge. What kind of choir do you sing with? Oh, yeah. It's um it's the Jalopy Chorus in Red Hook. <laughs> it's we sit it's it's singing folk music. So that's the music I love to sing. So we sing folk music from um the Caucasus, from from Georgia, from um uh obviously all around the US, but but also folk music from South Africa, folk music from Corsica in Europe. So all sorts of different traditions, um, which are often polyphonic, so they have multiple harmonies. And that's I love that harmony singing. And it's for me, it's not singing to perform, like it's not about showing off, like, hey like we're on the voice you know like that kind of singing it's about 
the experience of singing. It's about being in that moment, hearing each other, because we can't all talk at the same time, but we can all sing together. And like literally when, you br when you're breathing together and singing together, your heartbeats start to beat in time with another. So there's this kind of like cosmic connection that happens to me in singing. Um, so it's, yeah, that for me, and I grew up singing a lot at home. So it kind of makes me feel yeah, it just makes me feel really good. <laughs> and it's it's something that I, 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 that is really attractive for me about religious communities. Because so often now, like, you're together with a group of people and the only song everyone knows is fucking Wagon Wheel. So it's like, we like we, we just have an absence of, of folk culture. You know what I mean? Like, we, we need those songs to, to feel connected to each other. And then if you think about the way in which song is being used in protest, it, it it's not just entertainment it's a it's a it's an organizing tool it gives people courage it gives people sense of of discipline to 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 stay in formation right all of that all of that stuff so yeah singing is like super powerful yeah i mean i well i i know the the feeling that you're describing um because that's yeah. what stand-up feels like to me i mean it's not Whoa. you can't you can't all talk at the same time but um you can laugh together right and also you can mind meld. I mean, that is an experience that I, yeah, that I all that I when it's going well, I always feel that way, and yeah. um, when it's not going well, I don't feel that way, and then that's terrible, right? Um, but I don't even mean like that. I'm like not. I think maybe from the outside, you wouldn't necessarily know because it, it doesn't have to do with bombing or anything like that. Because sometimes, I mean, at this point, I I rarely. Um, bomb except on zoom shows very easy to bomb on the zoom show oh my um God. but yeah <laughs> but rough. it's more so just that there's like a performance and then there's this sort of elevated version yeah. that is uh transcendent yeah. yeah performance How, and transcendence yeah would you like when do you know that it's at that kind of spiritual level? Like when that connection with an audience is is. At I mean, I'll that. tell you the most fucked up story that is in. So I also wrote a book. This is the end of my book. So sorry to ruin this for anybody who hasn't listened or hasn't read it. But look, the rest of it's good. Um, there was this is like this is like the most. This is like the moment that I knew hmm. that I wasn't making this up. Um, I was performing in New York, uh, actually at the basement of the Ace Hotel that is like in, I think like Midtown Manhattan. Midtown, right? right. And it was a year that that had just opened or something like that. So it was like very swanky. Uh, yeah, wow, yeah. we can't even believe we're here. Um, and there's a, the front row is a couch, you know, that sort of show, right? Right. And I had been on a hike with one of my friends that day and I, I wasn't doing material. I was just talking about going on a hike with one of my friends and she was talking about having a kid and I was talking about how the fuck could you ever know that that's something you want to do? And mm. it was going very well with the audience and I felt this, this, I visualized mm. like I was a tree. You're going to mm. love this. This is exactly up your alley. Yes. I, I had this, I started to have this like sort of vision that like I was a tree and my roots were going back down through the floor. And then they were coming up and like connecting into all of the people. And that we were all like rooted, like actually networked together physically, wow. energetically through the floor. And 
I finished the set and it went re- it went really well. The per- one of the people who was sitting on the couch in the front row was Reggie Watts, who now is uh, the band leader on James Corden. At the time, he was like a beloved comic, so like I knew who he was. He was a he was ahead of me, um, but he was not like a super mega famous person. He was like somebody that you like a comedy nerd would mm. you know, mm-hmm. ultimate comics comic sort of a person. So he's sitting in the front row and I'm doing so well, but also he's laughing at me, which is like, oh, what a dream. And then afterwards he come up comes up to me. And of course, like if you know anything about Reggie Watts, he's already very like groovy. Um, and he said, I like loved that performance. I mean, I think what I loved the most was that moment where like you were a tree. And it was like, you're going down. I had not talked about this on stage. I had not mentioned that this is how I felt. And he's like, it was like you were connected to everybody. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah, man. That's exactly what it was like. And um, oh. anyway, that's what it feels like. And uh, it gives me tingles, Cameron, because it's. I know. And it's so. And it's like, it's that tangible that another yeah. comic who clearly can, can like gets it. the same. Yeah. thing out of it when it's going well could could yeah. identify it and here's the thing like literally the word religion translates as rebinding like the these pra- spiritual practices are there to remind us what is already true which is that we are connected in exactly that way that you were describing right and whether it's dancing together or singing together or, or being in a comedy show together like the moments when we remember that we have that rootedness together like that's when we're actually conscious of what's true and it's it's it, all, all of these practices don't make something happen they're just reminding us of what's already there and that we keep forgetting and i just i that's why I love spiritual practices because they it can be anything. It can be baseball. It can be like cuddling your kid, right? Whatever helps you remember that. That's that's what what you can build a ritual around. That's that's a spiritual practice waiting to be made, you know, real in your life. In right. Some way. Oh God, that's such a it's such a good way of saying it. It's such a good way of describing it. Also, before um, so you know, I'm I'm used to having that experience in stand-up, but I also yeah. am used to the unfortunate thing about it mm-hmm. is I have to be the boss of that experience. Yeah. Like I'm the one that's <laughs> that's setting it up. And I will right. say that, you know, to the point that we were making earlier, it's like, then I just got to this place in my life where I was just like, could I, how, how can I have that experience, but mm-hmm. I'm not creating it? Because at that point I was just feeling like, I kind of want to be part of the team, you know, like I'm yep. sick of being the boss of the thing. And, um, Last year, I started going to dance classes because my friend Katiana had just invited me to go. She invited me to go a couple times. She's she's like somebody I really think is like a good hang. And I thought she wouldn't like she wouldn't suggest something that was like absolutely the worst. Um, But I also felt like (laughs) some body shame and some like gender related shame were for real. You know, I had taken dance classes as a a little kid and I was like always feeling so humiliated. And I just was like. I don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't know if I can show up. Um, mm-hmm. But I like texted her. And that's the, that's the reason I'm bringing this up is that also sometimes it's very hard to join mm-hmm. up. Like when you were talking about being part of a chorus, I was like, but how did you show up the first time? Like, that's yeah, what yeah. that's what I thought in my mind is mm-hmm. like that that just seems impossible. Um, and so what I did was, you know, I found that buddy who was doing the thing that I thought I could trust. And I texted her like, for some accountability, you know, to say, I'm going to come meet you tomorrow morning. And like, she was so smiley and happy to see me. And then 
you know, and then I felt like a go- I could go. Because for me, it's like the, fir- the first time is the time that's, that's that bridge. It's like, I, I'm never going to cross, if I'm not, like, I'm either, I'm either never going to cross it, or I'm going to get to the other side, and then I can do it, uh, like, it, it, forever. Um, 100%, 100%. And that's true for all of us. I mean, I, again, this is uh, one of my frustrations with the current like culture around spirituality is like that it's some sort of personal journey that you do on your own. And it's like, hello, like, of course, everyone learns to do something because someone else helped them. Right. And so, and we're always part a teacher, right? Like Tatiana's bringing you along with her. And then we're also a student when Tatiana's going somewhere for the first time and someone else is bringing her, right? And so like, we're we're always both of those roles. And it's like, can can we be conscious of that? Can we lean into the moments when we can bring someone else into something that we love doing? And then can we be brave and go with someone else into something that's new for us? I, I, I love that. I love that. And, and, you know, sometimes we like, as I said, I grew up singing a lot. So for me, it's very easy to like start a song and get everyone going. Um, but like something else, oh my God, like, oh God. And if anything involving like physical exercise, I'm like, oh Jesus, help me. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> that's where all my stuff shows up. And I'm like, oh, um, and I need help. Or like some sort of great Madonna playlist and Madonna will help me through. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so for somebody that is so sensitive to yeah. this connection, and I I am having this experience in, I would have said I was an introvert because sometimes I just find myself like exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that that was that I was exhausted by other people and that I like needed to recharge my batteries alone. Yeah. But I actually think it's that I put too much of my life into a category of work like all of my friends but before the last couple of years all of my friends were actually co-workers that i was just scooting yeah. into a friendship area and all of my time you know i could work seven days a week so i something i've noticed is that if i have a little more separation then that's not necessarily as true but what i'm finding in in pandemic times is that i actually am totally an extrovert not necessarily that i need to um like I hate a party. Party is still not my default. <laughs> yes. I like a dinner party. Yes. A party's but I I do love to sort of be in the mix. Like yeah. I love to go to a bookshop, walk around oh. and just sort of absorb the energy of being so there. So good. Yes. So how are you, a person who's so sensitive to how we are all networks of trees? <laughs> how are you dealing with this time of separation? What are you doing? It's- sucks so much it sucks so much um i'm a huge extrovert i'm i'm massively oriented towards other people um and i love i love learning and being and vibing and all the things like it during this pandemic especially in the first few months once a week I would cycle to the Brooklyn Bridge and just like stand there and look at the cars and be like, there's other people, there's other people. Like, I, just, I just need to like soak up something. Um, so it's, it's been really you. tough. I've been, it, yeah, it's been really tough. And, you know, we decided early on to make a little pod with some neighbors in our building. And we didn't know folks at all well, but we were like, listen, we've got to have some human contact. So we, we there's a, a couple, couple of folks and we, would have dinner once in a while or play Mario Kart or like something. And that that's been a huge help. But um, the thing that's been really revealing for me is as someone who has friends, you know, obviously I moved countries, I have friends on the West Coast, East Coast, then back in Europe. My life has been designed 
for a for a lifestyle that is both environmentally unsustainable, but also like not corona resistant, you know, <laughs> like or any sort of future where l- locality is going to become super important again. Um, and it's maybe really think about how how can I think about friendships that are more local um that are not dependent on you know work travel or whatever else that is that is happening that allows me to have dinner with someone in san francisco or allows me to see dear dear friends in boston so that's kind of opened up some big questions for me in terms of like long-term life planning which is which has been it's just not easy um so that's that's one of the questions i understand what you're saying so does that look like you know redoubling your efforts to local community like is that is that when you think about that what is the yeah and and also which which locality do i choose right my 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 immediate family is all in england um my professional life is in america you know are those two things going to come towards a a clash at some point where i where i really have to choose one or the other um mostly i'm ignoring that question and eating hagen does um so that has been my (laughs) my story i relate to that question my family lives all over the place too and um yeah my my parents live in chicago my sis mm. my siblings live one lives in south america one lives in the wow. american south um and my partner's family all lives in europe yeah. um so i do think that like i mean you're you're absolutely right to point out the environmental um unsustainability my job is you know i'm a, i'm like always a platinum medallion like i'm always like Oh. The person that flies so yes. much that Delta's like, hey, man, great to see you. Like, like, so, like thanks. <laughs> you know, thanks um, for being here, Cameron. We're so glad. To yeah, see you. it's like yeah. so nice that you didn't buy a house, but instead spent this money on airplane tickets. Um, you know, so I have I have like you, I have friends all over the place, but I also do have, um, you know, family all over the place. And weirdly, mm-hmm. as a queer person, that's I right, sort of resisted the friends or family thing for a very long time i don't i don't know what that is i think it maybe it's job related i don't know i don't know what it is i like really still was like family is family maybe it's being italian i don't know i'm very italian but um (laughs) well and for for me it has a lot to do with the fact that my you know my coming out was was exceptionally easy although my therapist says don't discount the pain just because it was easier than other people's. But um, nonetheless, like I, I was so lucky to to not have to experience a great breach with my family, for example. And so that that it that helps. Yeah. I mean, my my coming out was actually terrible, but yeah. I mean it was very bad. Um, but I had this weird sort of experience of like I moved to Boston and was going to school there came out it was terrible all my family mm. was living in a bunch of different places my older sister was not and then we all sort of collapsed back into chicago mm. and there was this reunification time as adults that i think mm. maybe some people didn't get to experience or maybe like That's maybe precious. like a younger generation is having this mm. because people mm. are like moving back in with parents but for me what happened was right. i ended up living on the same block with my siblings as adults we all lived like, down down in the city in um in different apartments on the same block and then my folks sort of oriented toward our neighborhood and it was like this example of may- maybe this is how things will turn out and then we all mm. exploded back out 
Um, and I think that, I don't think that that was actually sustainable. Like I don't, mm. I don't think we all meant to sort of recreate our family unit as adults, but I think that it was a reaction to mm. this huge rift that happened mm. when I came out. Mm. Like, I think, I think everybody about, felt so fucked up about it that they were like, wait, can we go back in time and be kids again? And like, let's do all this live together. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And, and learn to live into a new constellation of family in which everyone can also be themselves. You know, that that's, right. that's such a precious, I'm so glad you had that time. And it's, as you say, it's not necessarily forever, but to have, to have that safety kind of that launch pad from which you can all then go out into the world again is is really beautiful knowing yeah. knowing that you can come back as well right absolutely That's, yeah 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 um so you are in sussex and then where are you going to go from there like I'll when be back. this is I'll, well, yeah I'll, I'll i'll be back in new york uh, in september so i'm here for just over a month um so yeah i just don't think i'll, I'll be able to travel this winter so this is the the moment yeah. Yeah, to do that. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think of what else I want to ask you about. Do we want to talk about Potter in any way? Yeah, I was going to just like selfishly ask you down? some. No, I was just going <laughs> to selfishly ask you about like some like like tell me how to live my life. But yes, we can talk about Potter. <laughs> no, 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 um, no, no. I, I'm, I don't need to go there. I just, I just, you mentioned it up top. No, I'm so I, happy yeah, just to talk like life stuff. That feels great yeah well i think that so it's it's tough i i can ask you how you feel about this i feel yeah. that like she also did damage to queer folks it's totally fucked up to introduce the dumbledore story with like absolutely no um payoff like that's really harmful and damaging but i also think that as two cis people it mm. is, it's this combination that, I listened to the episode of your show where you had yeah. a conversation where you had like a trans guest and then you had a bunch, at the end of it, you had a bunch of people call in who are trans identified and you just played their messages. Yeah. Um, I would actually recommend to anybody that listens to this podcast that did grow up loving the Potter series. Do you remember the title of this episode? I'm sure you know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, it's called an outpost. I think ab about J.K. Rowling's transphobia. So it, it's it's one of the recent like four or five um, episodes in the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text feed. Um, we yeah, we interviewed Jackson Bird and then hear from a bunch of trans and non-binary listeners. It's it's pretty it's pretty powerful because not just what Jackson has to say, but then also I really appreciated um, that you just set it up so that trans folks could talk without any commentary, feedback, or even yeah support like because these are just you know folks whose voices can stand alone um but how do you you know as a cis person understand what your job role you yeah. know what's what how are you understanding that right now you know it's it's been really um it's weird it's like two roads traveling at the same time um on one road i feel so grateful that we have never oriented our conversations around jk rowling I've never, I'm interested in the Potter books because there are so many people who love them who don't fit into a traditional religious home. That's why I care about them. Which is exactly, I just have to say, which is exactly why her 
stance is so infuriating because she is speaking directly to a community that has been brutalized, murdered, made homeless, like um, legit and ostracized from their families because of like that is exactly the person who would then find spirituality in the Harry Potter series. It is so cruel. Her cruelty is so strong. It's so cruel. Totally, she's colonizing the fandom in this like such a destructive and selfish, honestly, way. Um, so that's the second row, which is like just anger and sadness, honestly. Um, but but that first row, I'm grateful for because it's meant that it's 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 meant that mostly we don't have to think about her and what she wants because what i'm interested in is people's readers relationship to a text and the text is set this is this is one of the interesting things about thinking about reading as a sacred text and i should clarify for folks who who don't know the podcast we don't think about a text being sacred because like a god or someone says that it's sacred we think a text is sacred when a community comes back to it to ask big questions about life and keeps on reading the text over and over and over again with the hope and with the with the longing that it might help us live lives of integrity and courage and love um and so it's it's that discipline and it's that community that forms around a text that that makes it sacred and so it has nothing to do with the author and if you think about something like the the, the you know like the bible to take one really obvious example you know the the christian bible is a collection of many different letters and stories and poems and all sorts of things written by many different people um and it's kind of bookended together to make what we now think of as one text it's actually many different ones um and Again, I'm not interested in the Bible because I think like a white man with a beard in the heavens like sat down to write it one day. We know that's not true. What I'm interested in is the fact that there are generations of people who have asked big questions about life and use these stories as a sort of a mirror, not to learn what they should do, but to learn how other people have engaged this question and therefore might have some wisdom to share with us about what you can do or not do in this situation. So all of that is to say, thinking about J.K. Rowling actually has nothing to do with the way that we read the Potter books as sacred. That's that's road one. The second road is, exactly as you said, she's inserting herself in these really dangerous um, and, and, and cruel, just cruel ways. Like there's a willfulness about her writing that is just, I mean, the essay was full of, as we all know, not just inaccuracies, but like there's a lack of uh, a lack of footnoting. There's a, a, a purposeful misrepresentation. There's there's a constant um, manipulation, especially of cis readers, to make it sound reasonable, which is which is all the more destructive. So there's a there's a meanness of spirit in it, um, and all I can, yeah. So so all I can say to the to the to the response that we said is like, listen, if you need to step away from this this fandom, if you need to step away from these books, please do. If if you want to stay, if you want to stay engaged with these books in, th- in this community, we're going to make sure that we never recreate the kind of harm that she has. And we have to think about being even more intentional about centering marginalized voices, not just trans voices, but as you said, uh, voices of color, you know, disabled voices, all, all, all sorts of uh, folks with identities that have been not just marginalized in, in our everyday lives, but have also been really caricatured and and portrayed in nasty ways in the books themselves. So it's, yeah, it's led us to ask really big questions and more 
more deep questions about what it means to treat something as sacred. Um, turns out nothing is perfect. Yeah, well, I, I think that another takeaway that I have from what you're talking about is, um, I mean, you you can't possibly know this about me, but I'm taking, I've actually been taking some divinity classes this summer. And what? I'm taking some this fall. I'm taking one at Harvard. I'm taking one at Wake Forest. And both of the Amazing. classes I'm taking this fall are on um, Black women in the Black church. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm taking those classes is because I grew up in a faith that centers, you know, the Bible as its primary spiritual text. And mm-hmm. also, you know, the, the Catholic Church is perhaps <laughs> the greatest colonizer in the history yep. of yeah. um, in human history. Mm-hmm. And I'm very curious to just spend some time mm. listening to somebody who, you know, was never like their, you know, black, black female professors. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's, I'm just very curious to not like, because then I'm going to come back to the church. It's more so just, this is a text that was told, yes. you know, that it was told to me meant certain things, but here's a community of people That's right. who definitely can't believe those things because you know the black church is rooted in black liberation so mm-hmm. t- you know it's it's a different center and i'm i'm very interested in just revisiting uh, mm. the same text with a different teacher and i think mm-hmm. that's going to help me grow spiritually but also that's like beautiful. politically and civically and i'm really excited to take those classes um, actually, one of them started yesterday. So, it, so that's all just to say um, that, you know, I think that that is something that as queer folks, we can access in a bunch of different ways. Like right now, I, yes. this is not, it's not, it's not, the black church has been existing. You know, this is not, this is not, but that's not the tradition that I mm-hmm. had access to. And so yeah. what could I learn about what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life from folks that have been working using even the same text Mm -hmm. in a very different way yes oh i'm so excited for you that's i mean one one of the great joys of of researching the book that i put together was learning how even with the same source text different religious traditions will have very very different rituals and practices so when you look at the black church in terms of the practices that are really central to it it looks very different from mainline white or evangelical white or even Catholic white congregations, and so I'm 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 so excited to learn from you what you what you learn in this class, and um, there's so many ways in which we can honor and and learn from these traditions, and it's um, yeah I think even even for those of us who might think of ourselves as non-religious, I do really believe that we all have I'm going to use a very evangelical <laughs> phrase here, but like. That, 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 that there is a shared inheritance in terms of what we can learn from spiritual practices and religious traditions that I believe are available for everyone um, if we're in relationship with its custodians and if we if we do it respectfully and learn about its history. Like there, there are ways in which we can participate in these traditions that are, um, I hope, liberatory for everyone. Um, and that's that's my greatest hope is that, you know, fueled by that kind of sacredness, we can actually imagine and build new things that we never knew were possible. Well, that is a perfect end. Look at that. <laughs> one hour and one minute. I was I always I always try to stop, stop like a little 
like maybe 57 because I'm going to ask you one last question. But yeah. just so, congratulations to you for that Thank final you. sentence. Um, <laughs> Gasper, before I send you back into your day, I always ask guests to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel that you can be who you are today. Would you shout out a queero? It's very personal one, but it's my uncle's son, my uncle Alexander, uh, my dad's youngest brother, who is gay and has been with his partner Jim for like 35 years. And I am so lucky to have grown up with a gay man as an uncle who was professionally very, you know, uh, like he achieved lots of things in his work, but who who was sweet and funny and loving and and smart and personal like when i came out even before i came out to my parents like he wrote me this letter talking about how all these great artists in history were gay and that i was part of this great tradition and like part part of a lineage that i i felt um i felt like i could really belong to and if i can have the same kind of sweet passing on of that to any future queer kids in my family or beyond, then I'm really, really grateful. So yeah, my uncle Alexander has been a real, not not that we've been especially close as adults, but just, just that image of someone who I know and trust and I see as loved in my family. That was just such a gift. Oh, mm. Wow. I mean, that is also such a, what a way to welcome somebody to, to, to right? lay out that we are part of a, a yes. tradition and part of a, a history like that's that's what matters to me and what i think is so interesting and i love that yeah. you had that experience yeah. well thank you so much for your time it was lovely to talk with you thank you for having me cameron i hope we get to meet in person one day and just like yeah high five and hug and and consensually uh and non-covidly <laughs> um and i i hope you have an amazing experience with these classes that you're taking and and thank you for having me on yeah thanks for writing your book i really think it's beautiful and it was really nice to internet meet you. Yay, internet friends. Bye. Yeah. <laughs>